This podcast features explicit language and spoilers. Welcome to Better Late Than Never, a movie podcast where I invite a friend to watch a blockbuster, cult favorite, or otherwise culturally significant film that they've never seen before. After we watch the movie, my guest will decide if it was better late, they've been missing out by not having seen the film, or never, the movie just didn't live up to the hype for them. My name is Dave, and I'm your host. Today, I am joined by Greer, and we're going to be discussing a movie neither of us have seen before, Transformers 2, Revenge of the Fallen. Wait, what? <laughs> oh, yeah. We were always going to be watching Transformers 2, Greer. I hate you so much. <laughs> no, uh, Whatever, Shia LaBeouf is cool. I mean, yeah. not. I mean, no. Really? No. Uh, I mean, like, I, he's gone through phases, I think. I'm, I don't know. I have a thing for, like, awkward, curly-haired, semi-Jewish men. So, like, why not? But I actually no. think he's an all right actor. I haven't seen anything since... I don't know, the first Transformers, mm. but we're not, that's not. No, um, no. so today <laughs> we are going to be watching a movie that neither of us have seen before, <laughs> Gaslight from 1944, and Greer, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You, um, that was not cool for a second. <laughs> Sorry. I just felt like if I was ever going to- Gaslight me? Gaslight someone, it should be during <laughs> Gaslight, so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Greer- You've never seen Gaslight. I haven't. But you chose this movie, so what were you thinking? I think it's kind of embarrassing that I haven't seen it, just um, based on what I do for a living. I'm, what do you do? I am a art professor. I teach photography, but I'm kind of like film adjacent. I have film students in my class all the time, mm-hmm. and a lot of my friends are film buffs, yourself included. Indeed. But this is one of those films that's, like, so seminal, not just in, like, film, but, you know, thinking about the lexicon and, like, how Gaslight is part of our culture. Yeah. And that's the good stuff I'm supposed to know and, like, be able to teach. And just this one, haven't sat down for it. So I'm I'm excited because... I felt like a poser for a while using the language. And I'm I I'm interested in in what I've gotten wrong and like kind of what I, I think it was originally supposed I have some questions about how it actually fits into our culture. Like uh the way we use it as opposed to what it actually is in the context of the film. Yes. And if the f- if the term gaslighting is as gendered as I think it is, because mm-hmm. from what I, I think the film is, I think it's always been used as a gendered term. And then, you know, since the 2016 elections, it was very much used in a gendered way. But I'm not sure. I'm interested to see if 
it is explicitly gendered or I think of it that way just because of kind of the way it's used against women. Like women are crazy. And it's like, well, they've been gaslit. Right. You know, I've also out of the realm of being an art teacher. I've also dated. So (laughs) yeah, I want to know. So yeah, I'm interested to see if I've spun it in that feminist mystique or not. Interesting. Cool. Well, we're going to find out and we'll Mm -hmm. definitely be talking about that both a little bit before and uh, obviously after we come back. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about what I guess both of us think we know or uh, expect from this movie. So do you have any sense of what happens in this movie? Well, let me ask this first question. Who do you think is in this movie? The only person I I know is in this movie is Ingrid Bergman. Okay. I feel like there's some other, like, greatest hits out there, but I know, like, this is one of those, like, iconic Bergman movies. Me too. That means it's going to be a little over the top. Maybe, yeah. (laughs) She is also the only other person, uh, the only person I know is in this film. I should also say, just to throw out there, I know I've done um, movies where I haven't seen it before, and just Mm -hmm. to do a little process talk. I do research on the films. Research. I scan some websites, mostly Wikipedia, just to get some info uh, to talk about and, you know, stuff about the movie. But I write my predictions down first, Mm -hmm. just so that they're not influenced by anything I may pick up by uh, that. And I try not to, obviously, I get a little bit about the plot and making of as I do it, but I try to avoid that stuff when I research. So that hopefully is not influencing my predictions at Mm -hmm. all. And so what do you think happens or like what do you think the movie's about i mean we both know that there's gaslighting in the movie yeah and what do you so i mean i guess we should just launch into the word like what do you think in the context of the movie gaslighting specifically is well it's about the gaslighting in their home right literally the light literally the light and there's two like, I thought it was one thing, and then I'm not... I've heard two different versions of what the story is about, mm-hmm. and I have a feeling I know which one's like, right, but it's either... I know the husband's trying to make the wife crazy, mm-hmm. um, hence, like, the terminology gaslighting, but I'm not sure if he, like, flickers the lights or turns them down to make her feel cr- crazy, or if he, like, creates a gas leak to, like, actually make her go crazy. I think okay. those are the two, like, I'm not sure which is which. I have a feeling it's turning the lights down and make her feel like there's a ghost or something, or she's crazy, but I've heard someone describe it as, like, you know, a little CO2 for the brain cells kind of right. situation. <laughs> Interesting. I hadn't heard that second one where, like, the gas is actually involved. My, uh like sense just from the the term and from i don't know i think i've seen a clip or two like on tv what my guess is ingrid bergman is going to marry a guy and the guy is going to try and drive her crazy yeah because she's like rich or something yeah for the money yeah something or he wants a divorce and can't get it for whatever reason but um my guess is that he's gonna mess with the he's gonna do a lot of stuff but it'll start with him messing with the light, and then she's gonna be like, "Did the light get dimmer?" And he's gonna be like, "No, no you're crazy woman." Right? Yeah. Or <laughs> he's either gonna say, "No, it's always been at this level," or another possibility is he'll say, "Yeah, you turned it down, honey." Yeah. Don't you remember turning it down? 
Mm-hmm. So it'll be something like that. And then I think over the course of the film, it'll like build where it gets like worse and worse, the things that he does until she's, you know, totally losing it. Yeah. I know there's like a climactic scene, but I'm not sure if it's like where she goes crazy, actually goes crazy, or she figures it all out and like murders him. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Either way, I'm like into it, but... um like a good noir film from the late 40s, you, there's like a huge climactic scene. Yeah, and pro- that orchestra is going to come roaring in. So excited. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also, I'm going to lay out a prediction that um, the gaslighting will work in that she's going to start to lose her grip. But I think there will be like a good guy detective character. Mm-hmm. There's going to be someone like on the outside who is suspicious or onto it maybe maybe he's like a detective who knows that like some maybe the guy's done this before does it have to be a he i think given the era it's probably gonna be a he but maybe it's a woman and that's why they get away with it because no one listens to the women that could be well do you think they get away with it or do you think she saves herself or gets or maybe gets saved i don't know that's why it's like that that my idea of the climax it's like it could go either way but i feel like He'll probably win. Also, thinking about the the era and like the cultural resonance is like, oh, women are just crazy, right? Women be crazy, Greer. Right? Like, no, you did that to yourself. Like, that's. <laughs> I do think that's going to come in where like she's going to get dismissed as hysterical. Yes, I'm, I'm willing to bet is... that specific word is going to come up. Right. So, getting back to my prediction, like hysterical and gaslighting go do together. go together, and hysterical is historically. A gender term. Yeah. Like, you know, a medical gendered term. Yeah, hysteria is something women get. Exactly. Um, and then gaslighting is so interlinked. I'm really interested to know, like, if it is as gendered as, yeah. like, I think hysteria came first, but they're... Yeah. Because um, hysteria would have been, like, that first wave of psychology with, like, Freud, right? Yeah, or, like, even... Did, is he the one who came up with the term? I don't know. I would believe so. I mean, like, Freud is also, like, everything he did is worthless. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's totally been debunked because it was also yeah. gendered and awful. Actually, there's a great quote from, I don't remember, but someone... Good thing I'm not on Twitter because someone will probably correct you on this, but... Uh, Freud is really worthless unless you're talking about art criticism or feminist theory. <laughs> so... Mm. <laughs> And we're back. <laughs> it all loops around. All comes back. But I think I think you're right. I think hysteria, it's like turn of the century, last century, right? Yeah. Um, and the only thing good about it is that even though it was like bunk science, bunk medicine, at least like good vibrators came out of it. That's what I've read. Uh-huh. Yeah. So interesting. Do you think that led to people faking hysteria so they could get their hands on those sweet vibrators? I mean, like, I hope so, right? Game the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, ah, oh, you know what? They all think I'm crazy, but now I don't have to do the laundry, and I got this fun toy. Yeah. I, I don't need my worthless husband anymore. Yeah, back then, otherwise you're a witch. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway. <laughs> Let's get back to this task at hand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick to my guns and say I think that there's going to be a guy who is in law enforcement or maybe he's like a relative of – I think there's going to be a previous wife. This guy has – the, the bad guy has a pattern and okay. that's going to lead either a relative of the first victim 
or some kind of on the ball uh, investigator mm-hmm. to be kind of like on the margins of this situation and trying to figure it out. And I think he's going to swoop in and save the day a little bit at the end. So you think this is like a serial murder movie? I think I there's going to be a serial aspect to it. Yeah, like a Black Widower kind of thing going Interesting. on. That's my guess. Okay. But I think that's probably just from a genre trope mm-hmm. perspective. Like, Is this considered noir? I like, I've it called is. it out. Of, okay, that's what I thought. But... Or at least noir-ish. Ish. Um, I have a noir little bit light. on that that we'll talk about when we come back. But there, it has been looked at from the perspective of being a noir film. Noir-ish. So or noir like yeah. Dusk. Yeah. In there. <laughs> magic hour. It's a magic hour movie. It's got that crepuscular feeling. <sighs> yeah, that's one of my favorite words. Crepuscular? Yeah. Because you learned it from like the nature channel? Or, yeah, as a or... bird watching term. <laughs> I actually think it's kind of an ugly word, the way it sounds, but I like- in the middle? Yeah. Crepuscular? Crep. Yeah. It's got that- But I like what it means. Twilight. Dawn and dusk, baby. Mm-hmm. It's a great time of day. Well, you know, I'm a photographer, so you yeah. need that. You need that butter light. Such good light. Such good light. Um. Okay. And let's see. Do I have any other? Uh, I guess this, I do think, even though I think there will be a guy who's involved in saving her, I do think Ingrid Bergman is gonna. I think she's gonna win. I think she, it won't be a sad ending. Mm-hmm. I think she'll have some kind of triumphant moment where it's like. Is she going to fall into insanity or is she going to like claim her sanity? And I think she'll. I don't know. This is the era where like we're starting to get to like where the, you know, protagonist doesn't always win. And the whole and I feel like why would it have resonance if it wrapped up with a a bow? I mean, it could just be that like 90% of the movie is this guy torturing his wife. (laughs) And then, and that's what stuck with people. So, like the, and so people don't really remember her getting away at the end. They just remember just all like, the suffering before. Man, he fucked with her. Good. Yeah. That was that was smart. I gotta do that when I get home. Well, then maybe the gas leak is like part, part of, of it. it. Or he could be drugging her too. Yeah. You know, slipping something into her tea. Oh yeah, and that's like that's some like flowers in the attic shit though. Oh, Feels advanced. God, yeah. I'm gonna throw that down. Is he drugging her? What do you know about um, who's involved in the movie besides the actors? Anyone like the director or production? I I know I was based on a play, yeah, like a British play, right? Yes. Which also makes me feel like she doesn't win in the end. Oh, you think the Brits are prone to uh, darker stories? I mean, it's like wartime, right? I don't know. I thought it was like the forties. That's when it comes out, but I don't know when the movie takes place. Okay. Do you have a guess? Do you think it's during uh, World War II? I don't know. I feel like... When were gaslights common? I mean, I feel like we started to get electric wiring the 20s and 30s, right? And okay. it like full effect because they started to run electric wire heavily during the Great Depression because it put people to work, right? Like, that was the big push. Sounds plausible to me. Alphabet soup shit. Okay, well, given that, then, I'm going to guess... But it could... You're right. It's probably earlier, so... It's probably a period piece. Like, 1910. Yeah. 1910, 1920s. Yeah, okay. Well... Got anything else you want to get down as a... Should we talk... Are we going to talk about the politics before or after? I think we'll do that afterwards. Okay, we want to talk about the etymology of the the word. (laughs) We'll get into that when we come back. 
But uh, do you want to lay one last uh... prediction down? Yeah. I feel like I'm going to get saucy. You're going to have to deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) Which means, like, that's a good thing. Sure. Um, I mean, if I'm like, a yeah. strong reaction to the movie is good. Yeah, it means like, yeah, all right, that tells, like, stands the test of time. I am really hoping she's going to be this over-the-top character, because she, if she's like this willowy pushover, and it's like, oh, that's what gaslighting is, and isn't it so easy to manipulate women? I'm going to be like, oh, of course. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, of it, course. <laughs> it's conceivable the movie is all about, it's like a how-to, it's like, look how easy it is. Yeah. To mess up your wife. That would be hilarious. (laughs) I feel like because it's Ingrid Bergman, they're not going to do that. No, I don't think so either. But it's not Betty Davis, so you never know. Mm, Yeah, that woman had stones. That woman, that would never happen to Betty Davis. Never pull that off with her. No. Um, Do you like Ingrid Bergman? I don't know. I don't don't remember the last thing I saw with her. I I know she's over the top. She's emotive. I feel like... I like her just because of like what she represents, but I can't like sure. put my finger on. I'm like, that was a great performance because you know. Well, maybe we're about to see one right now. I hope we are. I hope we are. Well, I guess with that, let's go find out and let's watch Gaslight. Sounds good. Word. was written two days before she was murdered. Where did you find that? In this score, she must have left it here. It's written by somebody called Sergius Bauer. Give it to me. He said I wasn't any liquor. He said I was going out of my mind. You're not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. But why, why? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. And you thought I was being cool to you. Keeping no, people away not from cruel. You, making you a prisoner. <laughs> oh, you're the kindest man in the world. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. If I were not mad, I could have helped you. Whatever you had done, I could have pitied and protected you. Because I am mad, I hate you. Because I'm mad, I have betrayed you. And because I am mad, I'm rejoicing in my heart without a shred of pity, without a shred of regret. Watching you go with glory in my heart. So that was Gaslight. <sighs> Damn. Um, yeah, you got anxious there a couple times. Uh, there were parts of this movie that were actually hard to watch. It, that, yes. I mean, yes. we'll talk about it in more detail in a second, but just generally, I occasionally felt really uncomfortable seeing what was happening. And I didn't expect that. To be that uncomfortable or for yeah. those like, moments to be so like I palpable? Mean, I thought I was prepared, you know, because I knew generally what this movie was about, but actually watching it was harder than I thought it was going to be. 
Well, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we'll, we'll get, get into, into it. it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It so. was hard, but I think where you were uncomfortable, I was like, ugh, girl, get out of the room. Fair. <laughs> like, agency. God damn it. Yeah. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's start with a little bit of background. Not a ton, but um, just to throw it out there. So this movie, Gaslight, is a remake of a British film that came out uh, four years earlier in 1940 which was itself adapted from a stage play. Yeah. And I think that was pretty clear. It was very theatrical, yeah. The staging yeah. was very, like... Um, the one other fun fact I saw about this is, check this out, MGM bought the rights to remake the film after mm-hmm. they saw the English one, and as part of that deal, they had a clause in there that gave them the right to demand that all copies and prints of the original film be destroyed. What? Yes. How is that possible? I don't know. Like it had already been released. Right? I know. And it's still, I mean, clearly they failed because <laughs> it's, on the it's on this DVD as an option to watch. So <laughs> Yeah, we screwed that up. We almost started watching that one. I know. I wonder how it is. But anyway. <laughs> Next time. Yeah. I just, I thought that was hilarious. But uh, anyway, so the director of this movie is a guy named George Kukor? Kukor? Coker? I don't know. I don't know. Did you look yeah. up his other jams? I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. And uh, it's a C-U-K-O-R. I don't know how to pronounce that. But um, Adam's Rib, The Philadelphia Story. Okay. My Fair Lady, which he won Best Director for that. Okay. So. And um, interestingly enough, A Star is Born hmm. with Judy Garland. So... He always made these like damsels in distress kind of movies. I guess he has sort of a that's a that seems a type. very much. A yeah, yeah. So, what did you think of the directing? You know, I, I think I said it a couple times when we were watching it. Like things were overwrought. And mm-hmm. We kind of figured it would be that way just for the era. Yeah, not not the most naturalistic kind of acting, but very theatrical. Super theatrical. There were a lot of tropes of noir in there, right? Like oh, using, yeah. Using the the shadows as characters for themselves, and then like when like there were very serious moments where we think she's on the break of this like mental break or realization moment. All of a sudden, everything like shifts in and their faces are like Gaussian blur and like in dramatic light and, and like so, so close in on up. the face yeah. yeah i'm like oh my god I everything's know. gonna turn at this point yeah and then it didn't so that happened like there were like three moments in the film where that happened which i understood i i understand that for the time i think that the the build-up for how she was being manipulated was interesting how it started very slowly and like, oh yeah, I know you want to have parties, but he just slowly starts to like the subtle moments I thought were better directed. And I know you had some thoughts on that. Yeah. Uh, than like the overly wrought big, like, big, you know, his like his, literally hysterical, hysterical moments moment. where she's looting. Yeah. I would agree that I thought more powerful were these, small scenes where he's just kind of like laying the foundations of her later madness the sparkle fresh you know just a little bit of that that was thrown in was good but uh yeah it felt you know if if the movie was a track 
Yeah. Like going around the bends really sharp sucked. Yeah. <laughs> the long like straightaways to like the subtlety and like the slow builds. Yeah. I thought those were better moments in the film. I think I agree with that. Because I mean, I guess part of it is just like our tastes as a more modern audience are to be a little more naturalistic and not quite so like big and like, you know, all this orchestral music and like pushed in like right on her face, like you know, those felt a little overdone, maybe, but, you know, yeah, that's okay. I think we were expecting that, though. Yeah. yeah. Too much of a 21st century lens on our part, but I was hoping to rip it from that lens. Fair. <laughs> let's, be, let's be fair. As a noir style of film, though, I thought it was stylistically pretty right on. Like, you know, like you said, a lot of light and shadow and good use of that london setting whenever they went outside that like dark foggy atmosphere was very creepy yeah reminded me a lot every time they went outside showing the facade of the house it reminded me so much of the exorcist the famous scene where he gets out of the car and is standing in front of the house there were so many things from this movie that seemed like the exorcist like when she's hearing the the steps up in the attic up in the attic it's just like the beginning of the exorcist totally the beginning of the exorcist yeah yeah, it, like just down to the brownstone and the neighbors being like, what? Mm-hmm. You're cray, right? And then yeah. very quickly things progressed differently. But there were a lot of things in the film that you're like, oh, that's what this is from. Yeah. Which was interesting. So for the cast, let's start with the queen herself, Ingrid Bergman. Ingrid Bergman. As okay. Paula Alquist Anton. So I feel like a dope because before we started, I'm like, wasn't her career over by 1950? No, she acted until like the day she died in the 80s. But, yeah. uh, you know, her greatest hits are like the 30s and 40s, like Casablanca. And like Yeah, uh, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls. For Whom the Bell Tolls. Casablanca. This. Uh, Orient Express, yeah. Oh, yeah, Orient Express. So um, I, you know, wrote down a few things about her that I think are cool. One, Swedish actress. Not an American. English is not her first language. She actually spoke like six languages. So that affected non-committal Euro accent was more her than the character. Maybe. She had this unplaceable accent that we were talking about it during the film. I associate it so much with the movies of the 40s. It's like that. It's, It's not an American accent the way any Americans actually talk, but it's the way I imagine Americans from the 40s all talk. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> it's every accent in this film had a very specific classicist purpose too. Yes. It was part of every single character and that was interesting to say the least. Yeah, there was some class stuff going on especially with the Angela Lansbury character. Oh, the Cockney accent, like mm-hmm. I mean, that's like such a trope though. Having that accent means you're working class. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But also the cop, or I guess sorry. The constable. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone had a different affected accent. To sort of like place them in the yeah. uh, social hierarchy. Yeah, and that transatlantic accent came in, which is funny because it is an American film that's supposed to be in London and no one actually had like a straight British accent. Well, some of the like side characters, you know. Oh, when you're like at like the the, the, the lawyer's office yeah. and the ball. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But for the most part, it was like that weird, displaced, transatlantic 1940s. It's like, that golden oh, age of Hollywood accent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
So here's Ingrid Bergman's award history. She's won three Oscars, uh, which ties her with some people for the second most Oscar wins for acting all time. She's tied with Jack Nicholson, Meryl Streep, Daniel Day-Lewis, and then a person I didn't recognize named Walter Brennan. They all have three acting awards, either uh, lead actor or actress or supporting. Mm. Do you have a guess on who is number one? Oh, please don't tell me Tom Hanks. It's not Tom Hanks. Okay. It is Catherine Hepburn. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, four wins, all for Best Actress. That totally makes sense. I wonder if Bergman hated her. I don't know. Because <laughs> didn't all the actresses from this era, like, have serious Kardashian beef? Well, <laughs> I'm putting uh, a 21st century lens on it again. <laughs> I mean, we'll have to see what feud thinks. Yeah, who was it? It was... I'm bringing up bringing Joan Crawford up, and, Joan Betty Crawford Davis. and Betty Davis. That was yeah. the epic one. Betty Davis is going to come up in a second. Um, mm-hmm. Other awards for Ingrid Bergman, though, it's pretty impressive. Two Emmys, four Golden Globes, a BAFTA, and a Tony. But she doesn't have the EGOT. She does if you count Golden Globe instead of Grammy. <laughs> but um, you shouldn't. I don't think. Yeah, yeah, they don't. They're not the. I don't think that was her singing in that that establishing scene. Oh yeah. I don't think that was her. I don't know. I don't think she's they close to the EGOT, though. And hey, John Legend just got his EGOT. I heard about that. Youngest person ever. And like one of like three or four, right? I don't know how many people have it. I, I know Whoopi Goldberg has it, though, which is interesting. So according to the St. James Encyclopedia of Popular Culture. Yeah, I don't know what it is. What are you doing to me? Ingrid Bergman, quote, was the ideal of American womanhood and a contender for Hollywood's greatest leading actress. Ironic that she wasn't American. I know. And also, uh, interestingly enough, especially given that this is in the conservative 40s, she was considered that despite being married three times, and one of those marriages came out of an affair she was having that was actually quite scandalous. So she set the stage for Liz Taylor. Hard. Yeah. AFI, the American Film Institute, listed her as number four among uh, the fourth ranked female screen legend of American cinema after number three, Audrey Hepburn, Mm -hmm. number two, Betty Davis, my lady, and number one, that bitch Catherine Hepburn. (laughs) I like Catherine Hepburn. Oh, of course. She's great. No, no, no. I'm just. No, I know. The beef. The beef. They. They. They probably like were each their children's godparents were just making shit up because they were ignorant. <laughs> Incestuous old Hollywood. Um, but what did you? So what did you think of her acting in this? Uh, Casablanca was better. Yes. Um, because I think it gets back to those hysterical moments mm-hmm. where fully prepared for them, but they were just hard. You know, like the overwrought facial expressions and like. And the, the, the shrill, yeah, it yeah. was. I think she redeemed herself once she started to piece it together. Yeah, but then she never had the confidence to piece it together for herself, which is the character, not the acting. But I did like it where she would she. There were like two scenes where she did a bait and switch, and you're like, "There's the acting." Hmm. You're like, "Oh, okay." So. Those scenes were tough, but I think those were more indicative of the time and the directing than her. But, like, mm-hmm. that's kind of, like, where they, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought the acting, 
you know, this is Ingrid Bergman, so clearly I'm not saying she's a bad actress, but I think the acting was best in the smaller moments and got less enjoyable, believable, however you want to put it, in those, like, big breakdown scenes. If she, like, did jazz fingers by her sad face one more time, it was going to kill me. I know. But (laughs) I'm really loath to blame it on her because that's so the style. It's so the style. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a, it was making me think, is it a chicken or the egg thing? Like, did she start that? Maybe, because, you know, she's such an influential actress, yeah. right? You know, it seemed like such the archetype of that hysterical woman having a breakdown in a Hollywood movie. They're like, oh, no, please don't say it. Yeah, like, don't say that to me. I couldn't take it. Yeah, it's like that, like, key light on the face and then grasping the face because you're in thought look. Mm-hmm. I'm like... Oh, yeah, just touching your cheek. Because, like, that is, like, the ultimate scene in Casablanca, you know? So, like, where... Hmm. Where did it start? I don't hmm. know. But, you know, in those in those more subtle moments, I thought she was great. And I thought she was especially good in that last scene where she's finally, like, realized what's happening and is messing with the husband back. You know, finally, like, you know, reclaiming her dignity and fucking with him a little bit. I, that's that's where you know, she wins an Oscar for this. Spoiler alert. But um, <laughs> I think, I think that's that's yeah. the scene where she wins it. I think that last scene where she's finally like having some agency and being strong and like I know, would pushing ag- on him. I would agree. But that last scene is also kind of out of character for the entire film because she is such a like. Weak. Weak, weak woman. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Um, her character and what happens to her from the very beginning is premised on this old school notion of female fragility. Yes. Where it doesn't seem like it takes very much to unbalance her. You know, I know it, it builds, but like she starts to get rocked right from the beginning by very small things very small things i think at one point i was like where's the fucking fainting couch i know (laughs) and (laughs) you would think uh, someone would push back on these things that are happening to them a little bit more than she does and the only way i can justify it in this movie or you know if i was going to try and make it now how i would justify it for an actress doing it in a modern version is She's someone who's already suffered a terrible trauma. You know, at the very beginning, mm-hmm. she's, you know, a teenager or a, a youngish child and has, you know, walked in on her aunt, basically her mother's murder, you know, or at least the corpse. And so that has given her, they didn't have a concept of PTSD at the time, but they were clearly going for that, where even at the very beginning, she was like a little off kilter because of that so she was already heavily affected by that yeah and the space that she was in even before the husband uh gregory is working on her she's already a little fragile and it's got to be based in this idea that she suffered this trauma so she's already predisposed to be vulnerable to this thing that's happening to her i have so many things about him i'm excited to well we'll get well let's get into it right uh, now let's talk about charles boyer as gregory anton slash sergius bauer what a great name slash the preeminent bond villain of all of (laughs) so number one he has this like french-ish accent or like eastern european like 
Paolo, Swagger. Yeah, would you like, come to my room, please? Room. Uh, yeah. yeah. Why he, would you do that, Paola? And he monologues a little bit at the beginning, and it really felt like it was a Bond villain giving his monologue. He yeah. had this oily European thing going on. Yeah. It, How did she fall for him? I don't... And it, t- it took two weeks. That was the plot development that we were both like, oh, we're in for a roller coaster now. Yeah. Because they establish, oh, she's in love. She's distracted from her her singing. And the new music p- teacher's like, I will dismiss you because clearly you, you are not capable of, of singing and working and being in love at the same time. Because you're so oh. emotional. Oh. So. That was me gagging. I apologize. But she's like oh i've known him for two weeks or we've only known each other two weeks it was established that like they were quite the whirlwind romance oh my god Mm. but yeah he comes off as this like casanova slimy character right away but also i have you know i have in my notes three lines large and underlined twice stalking is not charming because he like stalks her on that trip and that like seals the deal right he just shows up off the train she's like she finds it charming she finds it charming and i'm like run what is happening such a red flag this is like everything's a little too easy and it reminds me of that onion article where the headline is man arrested for engaging in romantic comedy behavior (laughs) yes yeah yes everything is too it's just too clean it's too much I thought he was good, though, in terms of the work he put in, you know, as an actor, uh, you know, in, in all of those gaslighting moments where he's like telling her lies or like spins on the truth and trying to psychologically unbalance her. He has a, a very skillful way of doing it. In seeing him do it, I saw echoes of like all the emotional abusers that exist in real life like it it felt very real and that those were the parts of the film that i found most difficult to watch when he's psychologically abusing her that way and it's like a slow build yeah and i thought that was like why the film has longevity and you were like wow she's such a she has such beaten wife syndrome i'm like yeah because yeah, that's what she is yeah because despite the like kind of histrionic soap opera level it gets to at the end there's a very believable build-up to that yeah. you know it reads as very very real and very plausible those early scenes of him laying the foundations oh. those were the parts that made me really uncomfortable and i guess because they felt kind of real cold sweat yeah yeah all right, and so then we have the really big discovery. Angela Lansbury and as like, Nancy. Oh, wee babe. She's 18 years old in this movie. Wee babe. And a dead ringer for Arya Stark. You lost your mother. She looks mind. so much like Maisie Williams. She's got that cherubic look to her for sure. They, they are have. identical. It's crazy. Well, let's just hope Maisie Williams has just as long as a career. I know. Oh, Angela Lansbury's so good. And so, yes, talking yeah. about her, I thought she was really good in this. She was really good. Right when they introduce Nancy, she's, you know, she's this low, lower class, I should say, not low class, lower class uh, servant character. And she has this accent and attitude that I kept thinking she's like the turn of the 20th century version of a chav. So what do you mean by chav? I don't understand that reference. Oh, uh, that's like... um a you know do you know ali g the the sasha baron cohen character that's a chav that's sort of like 
blue oh. from the blue collar class but like you know obsessed with hip-hop and like very heavily accented and a lot of slang and like affected mannerisms like soap yeah she the the cockney accent was immediately very strong yeah especially against everyone else's transatlantic accent but also she sexualized immediately yeah like he hired her and then makes a comment about her dress immediately. Well, that's and also his strategy for manipulating her is to like hit on her and suggest she has a chance with him. Oh yeah. It was it was very apparent in that respect. She's here as this ploy that he's gonna manipulate or charm, but it was unclear if it was something that he was act someone who he was actually sexually aroused in. in or if he was going to use her as a ploy against his wife, which he does. Right, because as we discover, he doesn't feel sexual feelings except for Jules. Oh my god. Yeah. That is... Oh, they blew the budget on all the special effects. <laughs> Putting the light in his eyes <laughs> this... when he talks about Jules. And, like, the sparkle on the Jules themselves. Yeah. Like, I was like, ooh, that is some good movie magic right there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's finally actually get into the plot. So, to start with our predictions... I think most of them turned out pretty well. For me, I had that Ingrid Bergman marries a guy who tries to drive her insane. It does not start with the actual gaslight. No. But it does slowly ramp up. And what's particularly interesting that we both noticed through this is that the actual up and down of the gaslight itself is not part of the ploy. No, it's the tell. Yeah, it's it's him searching he so during the course of the film the gaslight goes up and down and that's part of what is like bothering her because no one else seems to notice it yeah or there's like some like explanation that doesn't make sense to her but you know other people claim it's normal but it's him in the upstairs turning on the lights and reducing the light in the rest of the house and he's doing that because he's searching in the upstairs for these jewels that he wants and yeah. The jewels that he he originally was this young and broke piano player that played for her very famous aunt. Yeah. And he murdered the aunt years before for the jewels, but she had them hidden. And so he's ripping apart the attic looking for the jewels. And this is a, and a super elaborate ruse yeah. to try to find them, which I'm like, this looks like you married someone. He really wants those jewels. Yeah, his only sexual desire his is for those jewels. Yeah. Well, I all right. We'll we'll take it a little more in order then. So the movie opens mm -hmm. and someone has been murdered, and it turns out to be Ingrid Bergman's aunt. Yes. Who is this famous singer, a very wealthy woman, and she's a child and has discovered it and is already like a little messed up by it. We can tell from just the first scene. But she goes away to Italy to embark on her own singing career. And that's where we find her when, you know, a few years later, the plot kicks in. And we have Ingrid Bergman, who's trying to be a singer, but you know how women are. Once they fall in love with a guy, they can't concentrate on anything else. You gotta get that MRS, let's be honest. I know. Um, and so she's in love with this guy that she's just met two weeks ago. And, you know, despite his creepy stalkery behavior... They go get married and move back to London. To her home, specifically. The home that she grew up in and found her aunt in. And I thought that was very interesting because 
already, even before he's really started mentally trying to unbalance her, from the start, he has her moving back into this house that she doesn't want to be in, that is filled with all of these, like, terrifying, horrible memories for her. But it's his dream to live in a brownstone on a square in London. Oh, well, all like, right, darling, I'll do it like, for you. Oh, I already own one of those. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was convenient. What a coincidence. Oh, wow. Like, yeah. But, like... Run. <laughs> it, it, it's like she's living in this house of horrors, you know, right from the get-go. And when they first arrive, too, the way it's shot, it's presented like a, a haunted house. Like, it's the, the same way in an early scene in a haunted house movie would be when you're coming in. Well, the house is a character in itself. It's a creepy house. It's a creepy house. And right. Overstuffed. Oh, you hate it. Oh, I you hated, hated the decorating. Everything. And I'm like, yeah, that's Victorian England. All the tchotchkes, all, everything that you collect from all over the world. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, we were trying to figure out when this takes place. Uh, my guess is between, like, 1900 and 1910 sometime. I think so, too. It's right at that turn. The 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 costuming... Was pretty great. It was amazing. But, yeah, it's it's definitely pre-World War I. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that. Um, yeah, it feels like it's right at the turn. Yeah. It's got that... So maybe a little more Edwardian. A little more Edwardian. But let's let's face it. Victoria. Pax Britannia time. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It it was it was very well styled. But the house was a character right down to the lighting, like the noir of part course. of it. Yeah. And like, you know, how when the picture frame is misplaced, there's the, you know, like thick layer of dust layer that of reveals dust. where it's been. Yeah, yeah. like the the light and how they slowly get lit up as they move in and make it themselves. Like that is such a trope used in so many things. Yeah. I liked the set decorating. I just really hate that style. <laughs> it's so busy. I'm just looking around your apartment now and just yeah, wondering, like, you know. Which is incredibly how... spare. But look, you've got some tchotchkes. I do have tchotchkes. You've got some Amelia tchotchkes. Actually, English, too. Those are uh, <laughs> pretty pretty good uh, for an audio <laughs> podcast. I have Please uh, describe what we're looking at. These little animal figurines from uh, Rose Tea. That you can collect. It's uh, something I picked up from an English au pair. I'm just, I'm just saying. Sorry, Dave. Back to our regular right. schedule yeah. programming. <laughs> You're blushing. Let's, let's move away from making fun of my house <laughs> and talk about the stupid house in this movie. So right after they move in is when the abuse starts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I wrote down like a bunch of these statements. And they're so, I mean, even though it's from... The early 1900s, these are the kinds of things where maybe the phrasing would be different, but it's exactly the kind of thing that we associate with emotional abuse and modern day term yeah. gaslighting. You're so inclined to lose things, my dear. Or um, you've been forgetful lately. Or, oh my God, and this is so awful. So when Angela Lansbury, this like young servant girl is in the room, he with Ingrid Bergman in earshot goes... Maybe you could give my wife some tips on maintaining a better complexion. Oh my god, I lost my mother-loving mind. Holy shit. He's like, she's had such a terrible pallor lately. Yeah. And I was like, wow. You're holding her hostage in the house and then like insult her and then Angela Lansbury is flattered. She's like, of course I can help her with her makeup. And then when she's rightfully like, why would you say that? And he's like, what do you mean, honey? I just, I, I care for you and want you to look good. Yeah, and totally plays her 
perfectly. Yeah. It's like, why do you hate her? It's not the girl. Why do you have to take everything so seriously? Yeah. I mean, the bait and switch was pretty incredible of how he was manipulating her, like, mental state. Yeah, and with the relationship between those two characters, too, it comes back to that class thing where her instinct even is to be kind to the girl at first where she's like we don't need the servant to come do this menial task and he's like well what do you think servants are for you know and then once uh nancy angela lansbury gets to the room he's like oh yeah uh what did you want the the girl to do for you paula yeah paula tell her what you called her in here for yeah Yeah. it's you know making her into the bad guy oh yeah because building that resentment he manipulates nancy to to not like her Yeah. Well, and also by holding out that possibility that maybe Nancy has a chance with this like wealthy upper class gentleman. So, of course, she hates the the hag who's standing in her way. Exactly. And if anything is to happen, Angela Lansbury's character, Nancy, is totally going to be like, well, I hated her anyway. So, of course, she was crazy. Yeah. And of course, later when uh, the police officer who's keeping tabs on the situation describes it, he describes Nancy as... She's starting to get ideas above her station, she is. Yeah. <laughs> As he's, like, manipulating her in a sexual way. Yeah. Everyone's well, yeah. after fucking Nancy, man. Poor well, Nancy. No, I'm gonna be honest, young Angela Lansbury is pretty cute. Actually, older Angela Lansbury is pretty cute. We don't have enough time in this podcast. You're right, we should just this. move on. Let's, let's, let's get back to the, the plot. And so... We go to the Tower of London, and then we get this scene where he freaks out over the jewels. They go visit the crown. Oh, number one, I want to point out that I guess the Tower of London has always been a tourist trap, even 100 years ago. Yeah, I, uh, I think it was a tourist trap, like, very soon after. Like, the blood wasn't even, like, dry. Oh, probably even before. at the time. It was yeah. like, come see the prisoners. <laughs> come see the queen. Yeah. <laughs> like- We've already noticed through the course of the film that every time Gregory kisses Paula... It is the worst kiss oh, I have ever seen. My God, so, so passionless. <laughs> it's like, let me just like cotton ball your face. Yeah, it's like it was like watching a person, and I know it's like a stage kiss, but because we're watching it on film, we really get a chance to break it down and everything wrong with it. Which is, it was like watching a person who's never kissed someone before. There's no passion. It's like he just takes his face. And without moving his lips, just mashes his lips up against hers. And it's like, I'm just pushing my face on your face. And that's what kissing is. Yeah. They, they felt like they got worse. Or maybe like the first one maybe. established it and we were just waiting for it. And every time it got more painful. And I, I honestly wonder how much of it was just the fact that like these are actors who were probably trained for the theater. And that's the way they're trained to do kissing. Or is it a thing where this character is sexless and the only thing that gets his dander up is the theft of precious jewels because we go ahead that's right because when he was at the tower he gets so worked up he gets he is sexually aroused by the crown jewels yeah like he's describing the crown jewels to this uh to his wife and and you see a fire in his eyes yeah and um dear listeners like they literally edit the film for his eyes to glow in two scenes yeah in that one and then like the last one when he discovers 
Alice's hidden jewels. Yeah, when he finally finds the jewels in the house. Yeah, it yeah. was. And the third scene where they edit is like the jewels actual like Disney Tinkerbell like sparkle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's pretty great. But I mean like honestly he he, he got an erection looking at the crown jewels. N- like how did he get away with that? During the 1940s, because it was know. it was a bona fide boner. It was not. <laughs> they didn't show it, but we knew it was. There. Oh, we were both very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, and so it's at the Tower of London that we meet the good guy who, uh, uh not accurate from my prediction, not a detective, or he, he's some you kind kinda of. You kind of nailed it. So he's a person who's suspicious and who exists on the margins of the movie to figure it out. It's not clear to me what his position is as part of the legal system. So he's not like a he, cop. He is some sort of detective, but can I just say that his character is kind of the most amazing because he basically saves the day based on the seminal moment, like his sexual awakening is based on the aunt. Yes. Like, he like... His sexual awakening was seeing the aunt sing when he was like twelve, and then his well, that's whole when lines you, uh, work formed those. Uh, I I know, I know those fetishes. I mean, and then like he solves the murder because it's like this weird Cinderella story. It is quite literally, literally, yeah. Literally, but you—he's not after Ingrid Bergman. He the wants the aunt, the aunt to have, but Ingrid Bergman has grown up to look just like her. It's creepy. So he gets yeah. to save and start a relationship with the object of his desires. It's such a male fantasy. It's such a. It's a little Wuthering Heights too. I don't know Wuthering Heights, oh, so I couldn't say. So anyway, we'll get back yeah. into it. But so this is also where we start getting the the earliest examples of his gaslighting of her. Which is that he gives her a brooch before they go to the tower, and then at some point in between steals it again and starts telling her that she lost it. Yeah, it's all it's all around jewelry, which makes sense for him because right. that's his fantasy, and like all wealth goes back to jewels. Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed in her that who cares? Who really yeah. cares? Well, he keeps telling her that it matters. It's like, yeah, you've been so forgetful. You've lost this precious thing that I just bought you. So this is my thing about her that infuriates me, and this might be from the 21st century gaze, unclear, but if someone is gaslighting you to think like you keep forgetting things or like you misplace things or you're stealing things and don't remember, wouldn't you start leaving yourself notes or telling other, like involving Elizabeth, the the good maid? (laughs) Well, to react to the last part first... A critical part of his plan for her to mentally break her is to completely isolate her from all of the outside world and from any source of mental stability. So by isolating her and keeping her away from people who could confirm reality to her, it helps him manipulate her. The buildup in the middle of the film is like she finally snaps about the isolation. She realizes she's being isolated because she wants to be a social being. And so she insists on getting out a little bit. And he totally breaks her in public. So then she's so embarrassed. It's done. Yeah. Which was pretty brilliant. It helps his narrative too. Like now everyone sees how crazy she is. Yeah. But I don't know. I feel she was a little too 
manipulated on those points. Yeah. I know, like, you can't have a movie without it. But right. it's it felt like I would have been, like, writing myself notes. Well, you know, he did a good job, though, of working her potential pushback into the plan. Because one of the most sinister lines in the entire movie, I wrote it down. He says, uh, are you becoming suspicious as well as absent-minded, Paula? That was brilliant. It was Absolutely. brilliant and terrifying and horrible. This gets back to the his character being interesting because he does have to think on his feet a yeah. few times and that's that one was more planned but a couple of times he does have to like bait and switch because she's figuring it out and then like yeah. 30 seconds later he composes himself and he's like of course I wouldn't let you go alone. Yeah. Let me just change. He Even, improvises well. He improvises well but he is psychologically abusive or just like verbally abusive and then the next scene he's like I love my life itself and that's even worse yeah and that's where you're like oh wow he loses his temper but man does he use it to his advantage because that's when he's not in control and then he realizes he's not in control and then it's a double down yeah on the psychological abuse there's a part early in the movie where she finds this letter from a Sergius Bauer to her aunt dun 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 and he reacts so strongly to it that it's a tell because, you know, if he was just a regular guy, why would he have such a strong reaction to this letter? And she knew it. Yeah, it's suspicious. It, you know, it stands out even to her. And then later he spins it to his advantage by being like, there was never a letter. You just imagined that. Is that the only time he outright lies? I, Other than like the, the objects? I mean, well, with the objects, like so much of his what he does is brilliant because He's just spinning the truth a little bit, so it's like it's it's off kilter truth. That I think is the first time that he outright says it's not white, it's black. Mm-hmm. I think that is the I don't know if it's the last time, but I think that's the first time he just straight up lies to her. But he's built his way up to that where she's already like not sure what's yeah. real. So I think what would have been more convincing to me, which they allude to, but I wish it was more apparent or blatant is that she is sleep deprived because that's kind of her affect right like she's exhausted and like she's so ill and he keeps saying she's ill and it almost feels like she's playing into it but if she's losing sleep over thinking she's crazy like if they had thrown in just like a couple plot points where like oh you didn't sleep again last night i would have trusted her character's mental state more yeah i mean lack of sleep can definitely make you soft around the edges mentally because that that was that was her affect for like the the second half of the movie yeah half of the movie yeah and she has this like drawn kind of bags under the eyes look to her too yeah which um is meant to make her look a little crazy but could also just be like she's you know haggard from not being able to relax or sleep in her own house yeah you know Another clever thing that he does that is so sinister and such a, I think, critical part of gaslighting someone is um, the dismissal of small things. And what I mean by there's a moment where Ingrid Bergman is talking about Nancy, the Angel Lansbury character, and says, I don't think she likes me. And he's like, what are you talking about? Don't be ridiculous. And he's like, why would you even think that? And... You know, she says, like, I don't know. She just gave me this look. And 
it's a perfectly normal human reaction to like see a look a person's giving you and like have an empathetic emotional diagnosis of what that means and to form a suspicion maybe this person doesn't like me but his reaction is a look what do you mean just a look don't be ridiculous and this like devaluing of her instincts is so important you know later on in the movie one of the male characters is like i think something's going on in that house and he's like why do you think that i just got this feeling in my gut and, and then they, they yeah, they're like, they're okay, on it. Yeah. yeah, like, I believe you. And, you know, those little, those little things where it's like your gut feelings and quick sort of analysis of a situation, even if you can't describe it, your instinctual reactions have merit. That's so important to your, like, functionality in the world. But that's gendered. That yeah. whole scenario you just explained was gendered. I agree. And what was interesting about that is also that he was playing the two of them against each other. Like, oh, yeah. Like, Angela Lansbury comes into the room for that stupid menial task, and he manipulated the whole thing and then puts them against each other. Yeah. Well, playing women off each other is... Uh, is also... Okay? Yeah. <laughs> so, I just thinking, well, we'll get to the term gaslighting. I want to yeah. parse that a lot more, but mm-hmm. I think... It was brilliantly gendered, and I do think that based on this, it has been a gendered thing. Yeah. So we start getting into the middle of the movie where now the work he's done on her is starting to pay dividends, and she's really starting to lose it. Well, he's he's manipulating her, but he's also prescribing what's good for her. So he's completely controlling both ends of it. Yeah. And she's buying it. I'm not only the cause of your problems, but I'm the only solution. I'm the only solution. And the staff is also buying it mm-hmm. because he hired Nancy himself. And then Elizabeth, we haven't really talked about Elizabeth, but Elizabeth is key in, in certain ways because she's deaf. Right. <laughs> and so all this weird sounds that she's hearing throughout the house, Elizabeth can't confirm that they're there. Yeah. But Elizabeth has her best interest in mind, but she's oblivious, right? Right. So also those those scenes where Ingrid Bergman is hearing all the sounds all over the house, and uh, you know the lights are going up and down. Those play into that haunted house thing too, where except instead of a ghost, it's it's her insanity that's yes. stalking her. Yes, it's the control is so complete. It's pretty remarkable. Did we ever actually describe what his plan is? So at the very beginning, Ingrid Bergman's aunt is murdered. And what you discover through the course of the movie is that Sergius Bauer, later Gregory Anton, the man Ingrid Bergman marries, was obsessed with the jewels that were owned by Ingrid Bergman's famous theater star aunt. And he first tried to steal them from her was unsuccessful and murdered her in the process and now is trying to take a second crack at it by worming his way into Ingrid Bergman's life. He knows these jewels are somewhere in the house, but he doesn't know where. And so now we get to the point that we're talking about where every night Nancy gets off work, so she's not there, and the only person in the house is Ingrid Bergman and the deaf maid. Yes. He, he says he's going to work or going to do something. He leaves the house, doubles back, and sneaks in through the, the attic. Yeah. Through an empty apartment two doors down. Right. And so he's in the attic where all the aunt's stuff is, and he's looking for these jewels. And so the gaslight going down is him turning on the lights upstairs and reducing the gas in the downstairs. And also she hears him walking around and trashing the joint yeah. upstairs. Which, like, 
It's been months. I know. he re- Months. He is a terrible searcher. He was awful. That attic's not that big. Like, you know, it's just like, use your eyes, man. Just be methodical. <laughs> just like, break it down. Like, just do a few items a night very carefully. And then like, set them into like, already checked pile. Yeah. It's like basic archiving 101. I know. You what see him hell? up there and he's just like, thrashing around, throwing things this way and that. I'm you like, know, you're never going to find them. The furniture. You're like, just making it worse. She didn't need to. Yeah. Like hide that shit that easily. Come on, I know. Come on. We talk. This is the point where her acting gets to a little bit more of that histrionic level that we didn't like so much. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking, wh- what do you think of this? So, because of the nature of what's being done to her, the way the other characters in the movie have to react has to be very like bland and like calm and rational. So that it, like... She feels even more crazy. Right. And so, in order to balance that, she kind of has to go bigger. Because otherwise, if she doesn't go big, then everybody is at this kind of, like, low level. And the movie might get a little too boring. She's the only one who's reacting strongly. Everyone else is trying to be, like, rational to, like, you know, countering her irrationality. So her irrationality has to be carrying the movie yeah. essentially i don't know except for the, like the neighbor lady who was just like oh, such yeah, a newsbag <laughs> she was just like she was just really into murder houses what's funny is like and, and she's apparently related to the detective yeah the help the the guy, the guy who's, who's figuring it out figuring the it white out. knight the white knight yeah yeah and but she's the bigger detective than anything else she's the one who's like we gotta get we gotta get into the house. But she doesn't want to oh, help anybody. She just no, wants she to just see wants the murder to know house. What's up? Yeah. yeah, but I mean, like, so did he, but for like very different reasons. Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't have sexual attraction to crown jewels. He has sexual attraction to a woman he met oh, when he was twelve. It and the the look alike that is and, yeah, and the doppelganger. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so also, also just to go back to our predictions about the movie. Um, he she's not being drugged and there's no gas in the house it's all psychological which i think is actually scarier and you know for all the abuse she suffers she's never physically abused he never touches her there are moments where he gets close though he physically intimidates her a bunch of times we know that he strangled the ant so that's capable of that was there were a couple moments where i'm like is this it but yeah he never actually resorts to physicality and i think that's smart because Part of what makes this movie so frightening is the fact that so much is accomplished simply through emotional and psychological abuse. And if he had hit her, it would have overplayed the hand. Yeah. You know, that might have snapped her out of it. At least, you know, by the end of the movie, you mentioned it already. She sort of has this battered wife syndrome because of everything that's happened. But it's believable. Oh, absolutely. She's not believable. The overwrought scenes aren't that believable, but this psychological toll is totally believable for how he's playing her. You know, I, I guess in terms of like the believability or whether or not what she's doing works, it works at the beginning when it's subtle. And then again, at the very end, when like all of it is cumulative and it's just been so much that like her emotional reaction makes more sense. It's kind of where that middle spot where she's a little big. And it doesn't quite feel like the circumstances justify it quite yet. Yeah. Yeah. But that's why that last scene is so incredible, but also not believable. Well, um, we're kind of getting up to that point. So before, just before we get to that, we get her coming out 
to the uh, the music performance and she has her public meltdown. Yeah. Which was very hard to watch. Yeah, you left the room. I found it pretty upsetting. Yeah. It was it was tough. I found it kind of laughable because her reaction is like too crazy, but also in that room and how many people were in it and like the music performance that was going on, you wouldn't have heard her. Hmm. But that's me also like ruining the movie magic. I was like, bullshit, would they all have that reaction and be like, shh, where she's like, oh no. And then everyone turns around on her. It's like, they were already kind of watching her, I guess, to begin with, because she's this exotic thing that's like back. Right. But and also at I the don't time, know. like the social uh, order was so like strictly policed. Yes, and she was. That scene was also interesting, though, and you pointed this out because when she walks into the room before like the meltdown happens, uh, the woman who's hosting the party is like, "I don't know if you remember me," and she's like, "Oh, of course I remember you from this, that, this, that, this, that, this," and it's like. And you were like, see, her memory's fine. Yeah. And then 10 minutes later, he just like winds her up. Right. What he does is um, he tells her my watch is missing. And then he has placed it in her handbag. And he he retrieves it from her bag, like in yeah. a very stern and disappointed way. Like he already knows. Of course, he knows it's there because he put it there. But he's just like. Fucking asshole. He's just like. I know. And like, and that's what sparks her to kind of have a meltdown. Yeah, with that slimy Dracula face. Of his. <laughs> like, he's so creepy. How did he ever fall for? How did she ever fall for him? That's what I don't understand. Because he's like in his forties, and she's like apparently like early twenties. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know the times. Yeah, but that's when the the White Knight kind of sees what's up, and he apparently puts it all together. And I just find that all like just. Even though he was obsessed, I just don't find his role in it believable. I think he just this is a, wraps it up in two. Need a bow. Need a bow. This is a good point to talk about that because we're nearing the end of the movie where he actually finally comes in to start trying to help her, and I think his role is superfluous. He is literally this white knight who swoops in and saves her, and I think again, if you were to make the movie today, it might have been a better choice to have her have more agency and save herself yeah. somehow. Maybe with the assistance of another person who can help ground her in reality, which I think is the purpose he's serving. Yeah. But, you know, in this movie, it goes beyond that, where he's the one who figures everything out and explain, literally, like, sits her down and explains to her what's happening. But, like, in the moment, like, the lights, like, the gaslight goes down and he's like, everything is clear. And he explains exactly what's happening. And it's like, I don't think you knew that that was bothering her that much. Yeah, I will say, though, I found that such a, like, like, I exhaled in relief when he finally says, like, I saw it too. Yes, but then it's, then it becomes a murder she wrote moment where, like, you yeah. know. Or, like, the Agatha Christie, like, everyone's gathered in the parlor for me to finally break down how it's happened. Yeah, no, it's totally one of those moments. And he's just like, look. You can stop being crazy now because you're not crazy. And then she snaps out of it for a moment. Yeah, briefly. And then he just leaves her there. Yeah, I mean, he's trying to catch the husband, but he shouldn't have left her alone. No, it was especially since he didn't find the gun. Oh, yeah. Like the whole reason for him. So he breaks in to Anton's desk 
And she's like, don't do that. He'll know you don't understand who my husband is, which is right. Yep. Um, and they don't find the gun, and which is what they're looking for. They find the letters. So he knows who Sergio, what was the name? Sergius Bauer. Sergius Bauer is from his exhaustive stalkerish research. And she knows it because he lied to her about the le- the letter, and then she's like, "Oh my god, here it is!" And then he's why like, did he keep it? He should have destroyed that. That is weird, right? But yeah. then he's got some serious issues too, right? Yeah. And then because Detective White Knight pulls out his letter of original refusal of the party, he can compare the handwriting. He compares the handwriting, and I'm sorry, but like. That's not that easy within a split second, right? Unless it is you... in a movie. I know. I'm bad at this. I'm sorry, Dave. <laughs> no, no, like, no. I mean, I'm going to be incredulous. Nitpicking's fun. Um, But, and then she's just like, oh my God. And then he's like, and then the gas lights go back up. And he's like, gotta go. And he just leaves her there with the, the, the desk just like ajar. And she's just supposed to like deal with the pseudo like known murderer now. And she's like, you got this girl. I'm going to figure it out. Yeah. I think in his mind, he was he was thinking, I'm going to intercept the husband as he comes in the front door. And then the mm-hmm. husband fools everybody by, for the first time, coming down from he, the attic. Through... Because he just so happened to find the jewels then. Right. right. And uh, let's talk. So he finally finds the jewels he's looking for, which were just in the the costume. They, they were, were hidden as costume sewn jewelry. into her. Yeah, they were sewn into the bodice of her dress. Right. And then I guess they were covered in dust so they didn't sparkle enough. Yeah, but did they sparkle? Yeah. Once he figured it out. Yeah, and then his eyes sparkle in just the same way. And he gets that big old boner. I mean, it was like it was it was a little porny slash <laughs> like Indiana Jones villain style. <laughs> like the grill. So he comes downstairs through the main house for the first time. Which he had boarded up and she wasn't allowed to go up there, so it was yeah. convenient. Except that he just pushes it open. Yeah, it's clearly <laughs> set dressing. Um, but th- we then get him, the White Knight runs to her rescue again. So he kind of figures out he's not coming out, so I guess he breaks in the same, he goes into the attic. And then comes out through there, right? I don't know. I don't I, think he came well, in the front door. The no. deaf maid goes and gets him. No, the deaf maid goes and gets the constable. Ah. Because they're fighting. Remember, they fight over the gun. It I gets see. really dramatic really quickly. Right. But again, all this drama is the, the men fighting. And I feel like yes. it would have been stronger if Ingrid Bergman was participating more. There's a part in here where the two men literally send her to her room. To go be off in the room while they while hash they out fight. the end. Yeah. It was, that was so anticlimactic. Yeah. And I was like, oh, they're going to disappear and the detective's going to die. And then and then he's going to come and kill Ingrid Bergman. Like, why would you do that? Like, this isn't over. And then. No, it is over. It Just is the over. final fight happened off screen. <laughs> like, yeah. We blew the budget on the twinkling eyes. <laughs> and that one gunshot. On the flip side, though. Now we come to the sort of the final major scene, which, you know, I think we agree is the best scene, certainly for Ingrid Bergman. Yes. Which, despite the fact that she didn't participate in the capture of her husband, she does get a final confrontation with him. Yeah, he's tied up in a chair. Yeah. Which is, like, very convenient and very quick. Yes. And 
It's like one of those moments that would never happen because she's like leaving alone with him. I know they would never do that. Like ever, ever. But then again, it's like 1900 or 1910. So like there's no professionalism in policing yet. Yes. And it's like, because we don't know if, well, the constable is a cop. Yeah, but he's like an old cop who, you know, they have uniforms, but they have no procedures. Yeah. And he's like macking it to the maid. (laughs) That's his detective work. (laughs) Yeah. But there were things in that scene that were incredible, but like... This is her best acting in the whole film, I think. This is her best acting in the whole film. And what's interesting is that there were lines in that scene that I have heard, like they have cultural resonance that I was like, wow, that's like where what? that's from? Where she's like, he's like, come closer, 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 closer my darling. Yeah. Please untie me. And I was like, He's going to, like, bust out. I was afraid of that, too. I was afraid of that. But I've heard that line so many times in one of those scenes. And it's been bait and switched a few times. Mm -hmm. But that was really interesting. And then the next one, she's like, oh, you think I'm mad? You think I'm mad? I am mad. And, like, kind of does, like, the sinister laugh and then brings it back. I'm like, okay. I was really glad she got the chance to do that, you know, to him. And, like you know give him a give him a little taste because otherwise it would have been very uh anticlimactic you know it would have been and you're you're right it was the best acting in the in the scene and in the movie and you think she's gonna like have this moment where it just builds and builds and builds and there's this moment where she's fucking with him with the knife Mm -hmm. and then she turns around and is still fucking with him and she sees the brooch Yes. Which really started the manipulation, the heavy manipulation. That's the first thing he says that she lost, yeah. And then she loses it again, and I'm like, Stab him. (laughs) So good. She doesn't stab him, but she does. Did you want her to? No, I think the way it was wrapped up was good, where she like flings the door open and she's like, take him away. Yeah. And then they conveniently tie him. It's like, whoop. And then he just yeah. stands up. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't decide. I mean, I think it would have been satisfying to see her just fucking stab this guy who's been abusing her for so long. But at the same time, it reclaims her sanity more to have her decline to do it. It does. And I think that also fits in with what you brought up into this where... She is playing in the to the stereotype of what women were supposed to be like that feminine um hysterical hysterical but also like very uh she is supposed to be dainty and she's supposed to be fragile, but she women are also of the utmost decorum of all times, even in hysterics, and they're not violent right right. If she's going to be violent, she's going to be violent towards herself. Mm-hmm. So having her slit his throat, uh, I don't think would have been in character. Maybe for Nancy, but not for, uh, you know. A low-class woman would do it. And, uh, Nancy would do it in a heartbeat. She's already, it's already been implied that her flower is gone. <laughs> Yikes. They did. They yeah. tore, like, every step of the way. But um, where he... Turns to Nancy and he's like, oh, what are you doing this weekend? I know. Oh, with that Sam cop? Oh, okay. So, 
but her in her station back to Paula of this upper class woman who is supposed to be of like the best moral impurity would have never done that. Mm. She does toy with him a little bit, but I didn't think. Yeah, that was fine. Yeah. We wanted to see that. It was good. Yeah. Well, cool. So, oh, and then I guess just to the, the very last scene is her and the white knight actually uh, start, start a relationship. Well. Oh my. That is the last word in the film. I know it's a weird ending it's where, uh, so the white knight is the son of the busybody murder obsessed woman. And she like from a distance sees them starting to strike up a relationship. And her response is like, Oh, well, well. and that's the end of the film. Yeah. It's like bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. So bizarre. Yeah. All right. So how did this movie do when it came out? It made uh, $4.6 million on a $2 million budget, which, okay. you know, in 1940s dollars means it made $200 trillion in prison. No, I'm just kidding. But, I was like, I don't think that's yeah. how inflation really works. Yeah, but, you know, something like that. It was successful. And then in terms of its critical reaction, so it has an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was nominated for seven Oscars, and it won three. It won for Ingrid Bergman. She won Best Lead Actress. Angela Lansbury was nominated for Best Supporting, although she really? didn't win. I thought she was very good. She didn't speak in more than two sentences at a time. Yeah, but I felt, you know, there was a lot that Angela Lansbury was doing that was very suggestive in her body language and facial expressions. This so is... even though she wasn't talking, she was getting a lot of cross. This is true. She had that girl with a pearl earring situation going on, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It also won Best Art Direction, specifically Interior Black and White. And I thought this was interesting. So apparently, from the 30s and 40s up until the late 60s, certain Oscar categories were broken up between black and white and color. That is interesting. Right? I think that's pretty cool. And I understand why they stopped doing that, but... um. I, I think it's an interesting idea. <laughs> I'm just, my mind immediately went to what is the new Oscar that they just tried to. Oh, uh, best popular film? Pop, pop culture, popular film. Jesus Christ. It feels like a high end Hollywood, like, well, color film. Like, that is for, you know, the Luddites. So we have to, like, elevate black and white yeah. as much as we can to hold on to the vestiges of. Our Hollywood. It feels generational. And uh, it it also won for cinematography, black and white. That makes, I mean, it was steeped in the noir. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it was a very well, um, well directed. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. It only won two. It did not. It won, um, Ingrid Bergman won Best Leading, and then it won Best Art Direction. It did not win the cinematography well, you're it was nominated to, but didn't win you're gonna have to edit all that out cut so all that just, just nope. fix it in post yep ingrid bergman also won a golden globe for best actress and a new york film critics circle award for best actress so you know despite our kind of mixed reaction to this movie it was an incredibly well-received performance i think we have 
situated our criticism well in, in our I- modern perspective. The idea of the modern perspective. Yeah. Yeah. We knew what we were getting into. <laughs> yeah. So for reviews, here's a review, a contemporary review from Bosley Crowther of the New York Times. Crowther? I just like that his name is Bosley. I was like, does he grow men's hair for them? Isn't that what yes. Bosley is? Yes. He, was, he founded the company. So talking about the actors, he said, Mr. Boyer is doing the driving in his best deadpan hypnotic style while the flames flicker strangely in the gas jets and the mood music bongs with heavy threats. It is no wonder that Miss Bergman goes to pieces in a most distressing way. Both of these popular performers play their roles right to the hilt. Nice little personality vignettes are interestingly contributed to by Joseph Cotton as a stubborn detective, Dom May Witty, and Angela Lansbury as a maid. We should use bong in our vernacular. <laughs> I more do. Often. Wait, not how as, do you mean? Not as a noun, as oh, an adjective. Is that an adverb? We should just use it more often. I agree, language. it's a fun word. Bong. <laughs> We're losing it. <laughs> <laughs> for a more modern did I did I say contemporary for the last one? That was a review from the time. Now mm-hmm. a, a couple of modern reviews. So James Berardinelli of Real Views said mm-hmm. Beautifully filmed in a gloomy, atmospheric black and white, Gaslight exhibits all the classic visual elements of a 1940s noir film. Okay. Yeah. So our prediction came true in that respect. Totally. And then Josh Larson of Film Spotting gave it three out of four stars and says, Overwrought to contemporary eyes, perhaps, but still troubling and in its own way powerful. Despite the histrionics, Bergman is all wild eyes and big gasps, especially in the climactic confrontation with a knife. Gaslight has a decidedly creepy undertone, especially in the way it mirrors the insanity of real-world abusive relationships. It's often asked why battered women don't just leave. Gaslight evokes the sort of psychological intimidation and cruel mind games that make it so much more complicated than that. Nailed it. Nailed it. Did you read that before? Uh, I cut and pasted it before, but I didn't draw my own conclusions from it. Promise. I'm giving you the suspicious eye. Ouch. No. Um, Uh, Yeah, I think we came to those conclusions pretty heavily. Yeah, I think so. Um, And now, finally, let's talk about the word. Yeah, that's why we're here. Gaslighting. How do you feel about its modern usage versus how it's portrayed in the movie that gave it life? So it was a good enough film for it to become a term, Mm -hmm. right? And my question going into the film, was it gendered? I I think it is gendered. I Hmm. think it's totally gendered. I think it's still gendered. I think it can be used by anyone, right? Right. As a as a term to manipulate someone in an abusive way and how it's kind of morphed, especially into the sphere of politics, it's completely relevant still. Oh, absolutely. I looked up the definition on Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Mm-hmm. And, well, their we, first response is actual here. gaslight. A light fueled by gas. Thanks. But uh, <laughs> after that, we get to what we're talking about, which is um, 
to attempt to make someone believe that he or she is going insane as by subjecting that person to a series of experiences that have no rational explanation. It's the systematic manipulation of using your own mind against you. Yeah. Right? They they give an example. Interestingly enough, uh, quoting Yashar Ali. Do you know him? Mm-mm. He's a journalist. He has a he's a good Twitter follow if you uh, are looking for one. My Twitter is garbage. <laughs> Gaslighting is a term often used by mental health professionals. I am not one to describe manipulative behavior used to confuse people into thinking their reactions are so far off base that they're crazy. I like that one. I mean, it's 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 Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, that's why it came back. I feel like that's why we're here. I mean, do you think I I sometimes have not agreed with the use of the word gaslighting for what Donald Trump does because in his case, he's just flat out lying. He's flat out lying, but people question themselves when he does it so provocatively. Yeah, I think the end result is to inflict on someone the same kind of like breakdown of trust and reality that gaslighting is. But I at the very least don't think Donald Trump is acting with that in mind as his intention. I, but... What's brilliant about it is that he's not making the person who's calling him out on the lie crazy. He's making a viewership think that that person is crazy. Hmm. And that person, in our respect, is either the Democrats or the media, really. Yeah, true. You know, when when Tucker, not Tucker Carlson. Hannity. When, no, 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 when Anderson Cooper or chuck todd are like no you're lying and all of a sudden trump does this bait and switch and is like no you're part of the media you're the one who's lying i never said that you're making me look bad it's gaslighting in a way that his viewership his followers are like see they are manipulative and they are crazy and it's to not trust the media yeah this is kind of interesting especially given the um various trump putin ties but um there's a book about vladimir putin and his regime uh, that i haven't read but i've read some excerpts from and has uh some bearing on this conversation it talks about how his style of authoritarian authoritarian government is based strongly in attacking the credibility of the media and journalists so as to uh, make the population more vulnerable to propaganda. But that's gaslighting. Right. And mass. And that's the way, about, yeah, the, the way he does it is by doing this kind of like faux postmodern, like you can't trust the messenger. There's no real actual truth because everyone is sort of compromised by their own biases. So really there is no verifiable objective truth. So what I say can theoretically be just as valid as what theoretically a truth gatekeeper would say. And I think the title of this book is very uh, succinct in getting that point across. Uh, The title is nothing is true and everything is possible. Yes. It's a great, great way of expressing, like, Straight gaslighting and mass. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Putin brilliantly did just that. I mean, think about the 
flight that was shot down mm-hmm. in Crimea. That's exactly what he did. He's like, we're not there. We're not on the ground at all. What are you talking about when there's film of, you know, Russian Why <laughs> would you believe there? your own eyes why would, why would you? Why would you think that we're there? You see, this is just the Western media manipulating. And it's, you know, all of those strong men. You, you would think that with the saturation of imagery that we have just in, in those examples, but everywhere, including with Trump, where we have literal video of him being like, yeah, of course I did that. And then like three weeks later, I'm saying, I didn't say that. I was never there. I never said that. Yeah. We don't have collective memory loss, but we do. Well, I I mean, I think more the problem is that if it was just once or twice, we could deal with it. But because we're so overwhelmed, it's it's too much of a deluge. We can't, we don't have the mental bandwidth to have the specific response to each individual instance dialed up and ready to go so every time you falter where it's like what is this lie about and what was the truth again like you know it's a lie but like there's so many you can't keep up with it mentally to respond to each one and eventually it starts breaking you down well on that (laughs) on that bright note (laughs) so greer uh what did you ultimately think of this movie uh, did you like it? It fulfilled all of my expectations. Um, I did. And I'm I did too. Glad I saw it finally, and I'm glad I saw it in this context because I think I would have been writhing in my seat if I didn't get the proper chance to unpack it. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Well, in that case, uh, I'm going to bring us to the final question of the podcast, and let me um define it a little bit. Is this movie better later? Never, with the definition that. Better late means that this is somehow an essential film, one that it's benefited you as a consumer of movies and media to have seen, or never in that ultimately this is a film you don't think you ever had to see. Oh, I think it is a film. I thought it was going to be better to see Better Late Than Never after the 2016 election because the term has become so prevalent again. Mm-hmm. I think people would have been a little iffy in using it. I think people used it wrong. Yeah. I've used it wrong probably probably in this podcast. But now we know. <laughs> it is very clear that it has become part of our vernacular since the, the election. What I think was a good reason to watch it in a different way was seeing how expertly she was abused mm-hmm. and thinking about how that came off so effectively and like that shook me up a little bit thinking about the psychological abuse yeah and what we talked about with you know the beaten housewife yeah. syndrome i think that is powerful to to engage with not thinking this is a modern diagnosis that this is something that people have artistically been thinking about and unpacking and digesting in a way. So that sounds like a better late then. Definitely a better late yeah. then. Like my takeaway is that I I can package it thinking about those terms and referring yeah. to it in that way, not just in a political or a vernacular sense. Yeah. For me, I'm going to say never, but... <laughs> 
to I want to explain it because I liked this movie. I thought it was quite good, and I I also thought it was good keeping in mind the sort of cultural biases that I have as a modern viewer. However, I think that because so much of its legacy and influence is wrapped up in the term gaslighting, and because I could figure out the deal with that term from reading about it or just, you know, experiencing it in my life right now, um, I didn't need... Right. (laughs) But I don't think I needed to see this movie. I liked it, I would recommend it, but I don't think it's an essential film. Even to understand the word itself. But you had, like, such a good crush on Angela Lansbury. Okay, let me let me rephrase. <laughs> it's a never unless, like me, you have the hots for Angela Lansbury, in which case, oh my god, that better you, late. That, you, that made it for you. Angela Lansbury is hot. You will never forget that. No, I won't. You would have lost. That is. That was an art experience for you. All right, you're changing your mind completely right now. No, I'm. I'm no. with you. Okay. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> Greer, it's been great to have you. Thank you so much. This was lovely. Yeah, please come back. Sounds good. And uh, just uh, for all of you viewers out there on the internet. If you'd like to contact me, you can email me at betterlatethanneverpod at gmail.com or you can hit me up on Twitter at betterlate underscore pod. And Greer? Oh, my, my shout outs. Um, I think I'm greer.muldowney on Twitter, but it's just like when I have openings, I like never check it. But I will I will plug this. And I am Greerist on the Instagram because I am a photographer. I'm a visual <laughs> media person. And uh, if Dave ever has me back, I'll be here to have a lovely time, I guess. I hope you do come back. All right. And that is it for this week. We will catch you next time. Bye. Bye.